Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. Representative Jim Jordan is one of the most important and some would say one of the most notorious people in American politics today. He might not end up becoming Speaker of the House. As I record this, it's October 18th. He's just failed to get a majority in the second vote for Speaker. He still has an awful lot of influence, and that doesn't seem likely to change anytime soon, for better or for worse. Many of you may not know this, but my co-host Jay actually worked with Representative Jordan near the start of well, both of their careers. Jay was a staffer in the Ohio State House, and Jim Jordan was a freshman legislator there. He, Jay got to know Jordan uh, more than a little bit, I'd say. And I know that since those early days, Jay has held a great deal of respect for Jim Jordan. I can't say that I share that respect, but I certainly do respect Jay's opinion. Back in the fall of 2017, this was just a few years actually after Jordan had helped to co-found the Freedom Caucus, Jay had an opportunity to talk with him on the podcast for a brief conversation. This was in the early years of the show and there were a few little glitches here and there, but I think it was a revealing conversation. Uh, and a lot of it, I think, is very relevant to this day. Jordan talks about why he helped found the Freedom Caucus, the goals of the group, which, by the way, included, he is, in his words, pushing their own party leadership, something we've certainly seen with the removal of Kevin McCarthy you know, from the speakership by Freedom Caucus members. Jordan also talks about his views on spending, the debt, government accountability. And then toward the end, especially of the interview, he goes off into what I called conspiracy theory, tinfoil wearing hat territory or something like that. This is in my post-interview conversation with Jay, which you'll also hear at the uh, end of this conversation Jay has with Representative Jordan. In any case, we thought this was a good time to bring back this interview that you may not have caught from our early days and something I think is worth considering given the position Jim Jordan finds himself in today. We hope you enjoy it. 
Uh, it's Jay here, and, and we've got something sort of special on tap today. Uh, my interview with uh, Congressman Jim Jordan uh, of Ohio, and and this is special to me because uh, I actually worked with Jim years ago uh, when he was a freshman legislator uh, in the Ohio House of Representatives, and I was a staff member, uh, and and really, um, you know, some he was he was really an impressive figure then and impressive now, and whether you agree with him uh, now, and I didn't agree with him all the time then, and I I don't. That's what I agree with all the time now. He is, uh, he has uh, always been a, a man of integrity and uh, someone who I think is worth looking next to. And we thought that uh, it would be great to uh, have him on our show. Um, but Mike, first, I mean, we're going to talk about how uh, we, we've, we've gotten here where we have the Freedom Caucus uh, in the, in the um, House, uh, which Mr. Jordan is a, a co-founder of, um, and, and its impact and its kind of place historically. Uh, this, is, this is sort of a, a different moment uh, that we've had. There have been sort of, um, oh, I, I guess you'd call them. Uh, what, what, what would you what would you call them? Like uh, not not insurrections, um, but always sort of uh, factions of, of a party. Sure. Uh, perhaps that might split off into their own party. Well, I mean, uh, historically, but but rarely. Go ahead. I've said, yeah, and, and certainly this is a case of that because the Freedom Caucus being a relatively new thing formed in, you know, just a few years ago in, in 2015, and they were an offshoot of the Republican Study Committee, which uh, right now the Republican Study Committee, they're, they're sort of, the Republican Study Committee was founded in the early 70s, and they basically were designed to be kind of a, a, a place where the more kind of socially conservative uh, Republicans in Congress could sort of have their own forum, and so so that was kind of carved out. And then uh, the Freedom Caucus is sort of a, a rump group, if you will, of that. And there, I think right now there are like 31 members of that. And so they felt like the Republican Study Committee was not sufficiently advancing what they probably call the freedom agenda, what I would call the seriously libertarian, uber conservative agenda. But, but you know, that that's the kind of thing you get. And I think certainly it's a, it's a creature of its times, as we've seen politics become so much more polarized, particularly in the House. And so so I think it's just kind of a natural outgrowth of what we of the partisan uh, polarization we've seen. Well, and I think it's also maybe an outgrowth of uh, the sense that a lot of Republicans have had where uh, they elect someone uh, who runs on a Republican platform uh, who then gets to Washington. And it, it uh, at that point uh, becomes uh, what's known in the, 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 uh, the lingo as a rhino, a Republican in name only. Uh, and, and I think there's 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 a lot of interesting stuff that we can talk about. And we'll, we'll do this. We have a, a post interview interview discussion between you and I uh, about some of those issues. Um, but I think it is important that that this is a little bit of a different moment in that uh, the the issues that the Freedom Caucus uh, pushes are, are largely uh, fiscal, although many of its members are also social conservatives. Uh, but it's, it's, you know, a closer outgrowth, I think, to the Tea Party movement. Uh, that brought in a lot of uh, fiscal conservatives uh, to Washington in the, the uh, mid 2000s. Um, but uh, before we get to that, uh, I think we should hear from our first sponsor and then on with the interview. By now, you know that Dollar Shave Club ships amazing razors for a few bucks. I mean, the name's sort of a giveaway, right? And Jay and I have both used Dollar Shave Club for a while, and you've heard us say all sorts of good stuff about it. Now, what you might not know, and I didn't even know it until recently, is that Dollar Shave Club 
now also has products for all sorts of other personal grooming needs. I mean, body wash, shampoo, hair gel, even lip balm. And, and really, that's pretty great because you'll get the same high quality as their razors, great pricing, and the convenience of not having to go out to the store, which, you know, I don't know about you, but when I do, I feel just assaulted by a gazillion choices and way too much marketing talk. And seriously, last month, I had to find a new shampoo, and I left the store feeling emotionally drained. It's Okay, maybe it means I could use more sleep or something, but I mean, my God, I didn't even know where to start. Anyway, if you're like me and you're sick of the nonsense at the store, now's the time to try out Dollar Shave Club. For a limited time, DSC is basically giving away their starter set to new members. For only $5, this starter set features their executive razor and three trial-sized versions of their most popular products that help you stay fresh and clean. In your first box, you'll get their shave butter, body wash, and one-wipe Charlie's butt wipes. You'll also receive their executive razor, which includes their premium weighty handle and the full cassette of cartridges. And after the first box, replacement cartridges are sent for only a few bucks a month. Now, this offer is exclusively available at dollarshaveclub.com slash tpg that's dollarshaveclub.com slash tpg dollar shave club's high quality products will have you covered from face cheeks to butt cheeks there's no better time to try the club first of all uh i would like to uh welcome to the show today a very special guest uh congressman jim jordan uh of the fourth district of ohio uh that's sort of a north central ohio uh, uh congressman jordan um uh, was uh, born in ohio uh, in champaign i believe yeah uh, actually and, born in uh, born in troy but spent my whole life in champaign county almost okay most of my grew life up in, champaign county. in champaign county yeah um uh, attended the University of Wisconsin, uh, where you earned your uh, bachelor's in uh, economics, uh, uh, followed by a master's degree of, uh, in education from The Ohio State University uh, and a uh, law degree uh, just after just uh, at, uh, from Capital University, which is uh, just outside of Columbus. Uh, and I want to uh, let our listeners know also, um, I very much had the, the privilege of working with Representative Jordan way back when, uh, when you were a state representative uh, from that district. And, and, and when you were keeping Mr. Batchelder in line, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> and, and, uh, great, I, great, great American. <laughs> so, you know, I guess my, my first question, and in our show, uh, you know, what we try to do is is get voices out there. We're not so much uh, there to, to make an argument, but to have a conversation. And and, and we, we had some folks who had uh, brought up that a lot of the interviews we did were from folks on the left. So we like to get the perspective from uh, from someone on the right. No one's ever accused me of being on the left. So that no yeah. one, no, no one has. So I guess my, my first question to you is, as the, the co-founder of the Freedom Caucus, um, if you could give our listeners sort of your your unvarnished, unfiltered uh, version of uh, what the Freedom Caucus is, why it was started, and and you know why you think it's necessary. No, we got we got a we got a simple uh, and basic mission statement. We think there are countless number of Americans, countless number of families across this great country who feel like Washington has forgotten them. Our job is to remember them and fight for them. We try to do it in a 
um, strategically and tactically smart way in a productive way, but we're going to, we're going to push even sometimes that means pushing our own leadership to, to do what we told the voters we were going to do when they gave us the privilege to come here and serve in the United States Congress. And it's, it's really that basic. Um, and we have 30 some members who focus on that every single day we're here. Okay. Um, you know, I guess my next question is how do you respond to it? Again, you get criticism, obviously you get criticism from the left, but uh, from sort of yeah. the mainstream center right, even uh, yeah, exactly. It's not easy, uh, and I, I guess you know I'd ask you to how would how do you as a Freedom Caucus member respond to those claims that oh well look you're 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 blocking stuff up and come on let's just uh, give a little to get. Well, I would use well first of all I use the example I don't think we're blocking anything I think we're making legislation better we're the group who put the health care bill over the top in the House thirty two of our thirty four members voted for it after we made it better. The initial version that was introduced was not what we told the American people we were gonna do. Um, so we went to work making it better. And when it passed, it was closer. Still wasn't what we told them. We told them we're gonna repeal it and then replace it. We should have done two pieces of legislation like we advocated at the Freedom Caucus clear back in the start of this Congress. But we said, if they're not gonna do that, they're gonna try to take elements of repeal, elements of replace, put them together. We're gonna make that bill as good as we can, a bill that actually will begin to bring down premiums. And that's what we did, it passed the House. Unfortunately, um, it failed in the Senate. But in a general sense, look, the mainstream press is never gonna like what we do. We just know that. I, I tell my colleagues, if the press isn't saying something bad about it, you're probably not doing anything worthwhile. So just just accept that as the fact that they may not like what we do. I don't, I don't base my um, actions and what I spend our time focused on here in Congress on what the Washington Post and New York Times has to say about me. Because if I did that, I wouldn't be doing what the folks back in the 4th District of Ohio and Americans across this great country of ours sent us here to accomplish. So I just tend to focus on what did we tell the voters we're going to do? And uh, let's do that. And that's that's what the Freedom Caucus is all about. Well, following up from that, obviously one of the, the big priorities of the Freedom Caucus and of conservatives in general is reining in federal spending. And last week we saw uh, a situation where uh, – the uh, Trump administration uh, entered into a deal where where uh, the debt li- debt uh, limit uh, was extended uh, for three months um, without significant um, uh, cutbacks in spending. And I know you've spoken on some of the Sunday shows uh, last week about what your vision would be as to how to use that that debt ceiling uh, to bring federal spending back to in line to what it's been historically. Yeah, do what we've done every other time. Almost every time you increase uh, the borrowing authority of this country, you do something to address the underlying problem. That didn't happen last week, and that's why I said it was not a good deal for the American taxpayer. Um, the plan we think makes sense is to cap spending as a percentage of GDP. Remember, Jay, today, today, the debt just went to 20 trillion. So we're now at 20 trillion. That's a lot of money. $61,000 every man, woman, and child would have to pay back in order to, to pay off that $20 trillion burden we now have placed on, on our generation and, and, and younger generations of Americans. So what we say is let's get spending back relative to the size of our gross domestic product back to its more historic norm in modern times. And that's something below 20%. Right now we're at 20.6%. The win is high as 24% of GDP in the early part of the Obama administration. So let's take it back down to where it's supposed to be. So cap all federal spending, overall federal spending as a percentage of your economy as you move forward. If you do that, I'm willing to vote to raise the debt ceiling, but I'm not willing to just vote to raise the debt. I use the example Sunday. It's like you got a kid in college. Your son's in college. He's spending more than he takes in. He's already piled up a lot of debt. And he just wants to be able to, for the next three months, just 
raise the limit on the credit card, borrow as much as you can uh, and not have to worry about it. But that's in essence what the deal is. That's not a smart plan. So let's let's focus on the underlying problem when we actually increase the borrowing authority. What would not, and not to put you too much on the spot, but what would you, do you think your your chances of getting that reduction are? I mean, do you feel you're, you're in a better position now or worse position now uh, to try to get those reductions? Well, understand that we, we didn't give the president any good options. I mean, I, I said this, I said this yesterday, I said this morning, um, we took a six month, we took the longest non-election year break in, in over a decade uh, during the August recess. And the Freedom Caucus said clear back in July, don't, don't go home until we address what we're going to do on Obamacare, what we're going to do on our tax reform plan, and certainly don't go home until uh, we, we have a plan on the debt ceiling. Uh, we all knew this debt ceiling increase was coming. The Treasury Secretary had said for months that September 30th was when he what, this was going to come due. So we should have stayed here and, and put together a plan. So the pr- options presented to Mr. Trump were a three-month increase in the debt ceiling without addressing the underlying problem or a longer period of time increasing the debt ceiling without addressing the underlying problem. Neither are good choices because none of them address the problem, the $20 trillion debt. So that's why we got to put together a plan. I think we can. I'm always, you know, I always tell folks you're an American, so you got to be optimistic. So I'm optimistic. I think we can make this work. We can come together as a conference, Republicans in the, in the Congress, and put forward a plan that says cap spending relative to the size of your GDP as you move forward. And if we do that, let's increase the debt ceiling, not, not you know, do anything to hurt the markets. Uh, so let's get that done, but let's address the problem. Okay. And, you know, another, uh, again, related, the other side of the coin from spending, obviously, is taxes. Uh, and that's something that's that's been uh, talked about. And there's that there we're going to see some tax reform legislation uh, at some point. What would be your vision or the the, uh, uh, the Freedom Caucus's vision just as, as an outline for what we ought to see in tax? Lower reform? rates, simpler, flatter, fairer. So, uh, look, on the personal side. Let's go to three, four brackets. Um, let's let's lower taxes for middle class families. Let them keep more of their money so they can chase their goals and their dreams down. On the corporate side, we got the highest corporate rate in the world. Let's go to fifteen percent, like the president has said. Uh, I mean, I think our vision is is where where the White House is, where President Trump is. Uh, the low corporate rate of fifteen percent. The one the one concern we have is this this talk here in Washington of revenue neutral approach to tax reform and tax cuts. Understand, Jay, revenue neutral is a Washington way of saying the tax burden stays the same. We just shift around who pays what. And in that scenario, what always happens is the connected class with all their big time lobbyists, they get a good deal and middle class families get the shaft. So forget this revenue neutral idea. I mean, again, when did Republicans adopt the premise that letting you keep more of your money is somehow a cost to the government. I just fail. I just never adopted that premise. I think it's a faulty premise. It's your money. So let's let's just design a tax code that lets families keep more money and one that is conducive to producing growth in GDP, economic growth over over the long haul. You do that, you're going to get the growth you need to begin to deal with a twenty trillion dollar debt. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader the station has ever seen. Will she succeed? 
Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Would, would your thoughts been, again, not to put you on the spot for a plan that hasn't been you know, drafted yet, but, uh, you know, suggestions of if we cut back uh, certain tax loopholes, certain deductions, traded that for lower rates. Uh, I mean, does that go into the idea of simplification? That, that you I'm, I'm fine with that, but I don't think you have to do it in a revenue neutral concept where some genius at right. the CBO, yeah. which I don't always put yeah. a whole lot of stock in what the CBO says anyway. But that there have to be so yeah. many... Uh, cuts for so many uh, uh, tax cuts. Yeah. But I'm for simplifying it, of course. We want we do want to be able to do your personal taxes on uh, on the personal side of the ledger. You do want to be able to do that on a postcard. Keep a few basic deductions. Um, you know, dependents of so pro family deductions, uh, personal and, and, and dependent deductions. Keep the mortgage interest. Keep charitable, and then make it. Here you go. Fill it out. Few 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 brackets, and uh, make it as simple as possible. I'm all for that. But don't get locked into this revenue neutral world that, that so many in Washington want to uh, want to focus on. That it has to be sort of a one for one or at least a one for one as they say. Yeah. Um, you know, one more uh, topic that and this is an issue that you've been uh, really out in front on over the past uh, four or five years uh, is is government accountability and bureaucratic accountability. And I'm thinking specifically of the IRS and the lowest learner situation. Um you know, recently, uh, Jeff Sessions uh, indicated that uh, he did not uh, intend to prosecute. And I wanted to get your thoughts on what happens next and, and what can uh, what will you continue to do? What can um, Congress do to do? No, you're, you're, you're right. I, I thought that was unfortunate. Um, we'll, we'll have a chance to talk to the Justice Department about why they made that decision. But I think the, in the more general sense, Jay, and this is this is important. There's a couple of things that really make voters mad. One is when politicians say one thing at election time, get in office and do something else. Like we saw in Obamacare with six United States senators, Republican United States senators, 18 months ago voting to repeal Obamacare. They had that same piece of legislation in front of them and they voted the other way. That drives voters crazy. But the other thing that drives them crazy and, and appropriately so is this idea that there's a double standard. That there's two standards. There's one standard of justice for you and me. But if your name is Clinton, Comey, Lynch, Lerner, there's a different standard. So we have called for a special counsel to look into Clinton, Comey, Lynch, Clinton Foundation, Fusion GPS, all this stuff that went on. If we're gonna if we're gonna have a special counsel to look into uh, potential impact of uh, the Russia may have had on our election, then I say let's get all the truth out there for the American people. And, I said, and just so our listeners know, yeah, Fusion GPS is the group that hired the uh, person, the the British. Uh, ex, yeah, to do the dossier that sort of launched so much of the uh, yeah, let, let's get all the facts out there so, so think about this uh, yeah, I know you're a sharp legal mind so uh, in the summer of 2016 why why in the summer of 2016 would the attorney general tell the FBI director to call the Clinton investigation a matter not an investigation why would she do that I mean last time I checked James Comey wasn't the director of the Federal Bureau of Matters so why would she do that why would the attorney general in the summer of 2016 uh, one day before the Benghazi report was going to come out, three days before Secretary Clinton was scheduled to be interviewed by the FBI, why would the Attorney General meet with former President Bill Clinton on the tarmac at the Phoenix airport? Why would she do that? And why- well, she, she, she said uh, to uh, talk about grandchildren. Right. So, <laughs> so you, you probably saw the story just a couple of weeks ago, Jay. Why, why would, uh, in, in the days after that meeting on the tarmac, when Attorney General Lynch is communicating with the public relations people at the Justice Department, 
via email, why in her emails would she use the name Elizabeth Carlisle and not use her real name? I mean, if you're just like you said, if you're just talking about golf and grandkids, why do you have to use a fake name? And why why in the, why would Cheryl Mills get the greatest immunity deal in history as Secretary Clinton's chief of staff? And why, as we found out just last week, was James Comey drafting an exoneration letter about Secretary Clinton before the investigation was even completed and before she was even interviewed? Now, why would all those things happen again in the summer of 2016? What could be going on in the summer of 2016 that was so important that these kind of things would go on in our Justice Department? Seems to me they were probably trying to influence the presidential election. So if we're going to have a special counsel look at possible Russian influence in the election, I think we got to look at what looks very clear to me as Obama administration Justice Department trying to influence the 2016 presidential election. So this is this bugs America. I hear it every single day across our district. This idea that there's a standard that exists for us regular folks, but a different one for the connected class. And that is it's supposed to be equal treatment under the law. We think we should get the answers to these important questions. Yeah. And I would just add, you know, this is something I bring up on our show a lot is uh, that uh, uh, as as a conservative and whether someone is a conservative or liberal, these are issues that go to sort of civil liberty issues and the the, the reach of the government into uh, your ability to elect people, your ability to uh, to to speak, and so forth, and and ought to be something that is is uh, receives some sort of some broad support, not just from conservatives, but yeah, uh, across the board. across the board. I mean, this is when you're talking about basic equal treatment of the law, basic civil liberties, right? And, and we talk about learner, we're talking about your First Amendment right to free speech. Uh, and the IRS, an agency with the power and the clout and the influence on, on people's lives that the IRS has, uh, was was systematically and for a sustained period of time trying to limit your political free speech rights. That is just fundamentally wrong. And so all these things are important. And I hear about all the time from our, our, our constituents. So, well, I, I know you are an incredibly busy person, so I'm, I'm going to let you go. But if there's anything else you wanted to add uh, or just say to, to our listeners, uh, uh, I, you know, we're, we're happy to we're happy to do it. And we're, we're happy to have you on the show again. Well, anytime. We, we, well, I appreciate the opportunity. Appreciate the good work you're doing. And uh, thanks for having me on today. But I do got to run. So take care, Jay. Great. Thanks, you Congressman. So, you know, Jay, I really thought it was I thought it was great, a really refreshing change, not just well, probably for our listeners, too, who are probably sick of me interviewing everyone. I thought it was great that uh, you got to interview someone that you, you know, really uh, I think it's fair to say you admire Jim Jordan. Yeah, I mean, I do. yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, and and, I, and, I, and so, you know, there there were a couple things that stood out to me, I guess. Um, one thing is that the, the whole idea of freedom in the Freedom Caucus, to me, based on what I know about the freedom Freedom Caucus. And what I heard in the interview is freedom seems to be all about freedom from government. Um, And hey, that's fine. But, you know, that's only one formulation of freedom, obviously. I mean, you know, I'm I I think certainly you can make a case that sometimes government is too intrusive. But, you know, I'm also for things like freedom from, I don't know, rapacious, unregulated credit rating agencies or uh, uh, poor and sick people having the freedom to go to a doctor and not have to say, well, should I go to the doctor or should I get food for my kids? That sort of thing. And, you know, that's that's part of a larger argument, obviously. But the point being is that, and of course, it's a branding issue, right? I mean, you know, they're there for a specific understanding, a libertarian understanding of freedom, allowing people to do what they want with their lives. And it's 
you know, and that's one, one understanding of freedom. FDR back in, you know, the, the day had a very different liberal understanding of freedom. And I'm not making a case for which one is better. I think there's a place for both of them, but it's clearly very focused on shrinking government, basically. It, it, would you say that's correct? Fair? And I think, I think something that, you know, Congressman Jordan pointed out is, you know, the, the goals of the Freedom Caucus. And again, I, I think if you look back to uh, the Constitution and, and the Bill of Rights, uh, there was great care put into uh, creating that freedom from government uh, that, that was, that was a, a really a concern at the founding. Um, uh, you know, the idea that, uh, and it's, it's often, you know, stated as, look, the government that can give you everything can also, uh, take, uh, take everything away without getting into our underlying ideological disagreements. Uh, I think what, what a lot of what I got from, uh, Congressman Jordan, uh, was that what the Freedom Caucus wants is for Republicans to keep the promises that they campaigned on. Uh, and so often you have Republican candidates who campaign on that smaller government, less taxes, less intrusive uh, agenda. But then when they actually get to Washington, uh, are are happy to to uh, compromise. Uh, and maybe compromise isn't isn't the right word. Uh, uh, some might say capitulate. Um, but but just the, the concern that that a lot of Republicans have had. This was this happened during the, the George uh, W. Bush administration. That look, even when you've got a a so-called conservative in the White House and you've got conservative of majorities in Congress, uh, in many cases, spending continues to rise. New entitlements are created. And, and there really isn't ever that that pushback, that that pullback uh, to rein in spending. Uh, and I think that's that's one of the the goals and one of the guiding you know principles of of the uh, Freedom Caucus is that look, if we're going to campaign on these issues, then we're going to govern that way too. Yeah, and you know, I I think that was obviously something that he started out with that idea about the debt ceiling. I thought it was an interesting suggestion he made that, that he would be in favor of capping spending as a percent of GDP. I believe he said it was. 20% that stuck in my mind, because I think that was actually something that Mitt Romney uh, might have campaigned on back when he was running for president. And that would, I mean, if you take a look at uh, uh, over time at, you know, spending as a percent of GDP, I mean, we tend to, in, in recent history, really since the 1980s, we've been slightly over 20%. For a while there in the 2000s, we dipped a little bit under. But right now, I think we're at just over or right around 20% of GDP. So what it seemed to me, I guess what I was struck by was that what he's saying isn't nearly as radical as I would have expected from a Freedom Caucus person. So that kind of, it seemed almost more reasonable. I think it's a bad idea, but it seemed like a more reasonable bad idea than I expected from him. So there was that. You know, what did, what did you think about that? Yeah, ex exactly. And, and again, what, what we're talking about is, uh, um, you know, that, that <laughs> I think he said it's about, was about 22% uh, of GDP is where we are now. And that's even with, you know, the big bump that occurred in, in, uh, 2008. Um, but, but again, contrast that to any time there's discussion of any kind of cuts, sort of the, the wailing and gnashing of teeth that, that you hear of, uh, uh, you know, people are going to be thrown into the streets and, and so forth. Uh, if we have even these, these, uh, marginal cuts, or sometimes it's even just a matter of cuts in growth, because again, you could still even have, uh, growth in spending as long as you have a, a, a commensurate growth in, in GDP, uh, that keeps those, those, uh, that, you know, ratio in, in place. And what, what I, one thing um, that I, I know, liked, the other thing I, I said, one thing I liked about that is that I think it's a lot smarter to, to, 
tie these things to something like GDP, as opposed to what I've heard from, you know, some other conservatives before about this idea of a balanced budget amendment, which I think is it, it gives you a lot less flexibility and just is a really bad idea for a lot of reasons, um, you know, uh, but but this, like I said, seems, you know, fairly reasonable. I just pulled up data from the Federal Reserve and they said in 2016, which is the last year we have data on, federal spending was 20.68% of GDP. So that's, you know, that's not a lot. And obviously GDP is pretty large. And so even a part of a percent is a, you know, a significant change. But but still, this isn't some kind of crazy, insane sort of proposal. And I give them credit for that. Yeah, well, that's, that's nice to hear from, uh, from a man of... of uh, <laughs> You're standing. Uh, you know, the other um, uh, issue that I, I thought was interesting that we talked about is, is when we're when achieving this, and particularly in the context of a, an upcoming uh, tax plan, uh, is is how do you score these things? Um, you know, we've talked before about deficit reduction, and the uh, Simpson-Bowles Commission uh, had the recommendation, and this is years ago, that, uh, look, here are what our tax expenditure is, essentially, and here's what our, uh, you know, revenue enhancements. Um, and and the idea would be, if you want to budget, you've got to do a, a one-for-one cut. And I think there's always been some, some disagreement in, in terms of, are we talking about a static scoring uh, type situation versus dynamic scoring, which the idea being when you when you cut taxes, yes, you may have a a dip in uh, in revenue initially, but uh, you you make that up uh, more so uh, by increases in spending and in, in commercial activity. This is the the so called uh, Laffer curve uh, of of the 1980s. Um, I know you don't, you wouldn't like that, but, but I mean, that's essentially what, what we're talking about. And, uh, I thought that was, that was, uh, you know, and I just like be interested in, in, you know, your take on, on what about that? If, if we were to restructure something where it's not a one for one, um, uh, reduction, you know, for every uh, dollar of, of, uh, you know, taxes that, that are reduced, we have to make that up somewhere else. I think I think there are a couple of related issues here. For, for one, I, I at least in part agree that that it certainly is possible that by implementing what what Jim Jordan and other folks would call pro growth, uh, lower tax policies, that you actually make up for at least part of what you lose in enhanced growth. And that's kind of what the, to a ridiculous extreme, that whole Laffer curve, which has been, at least to its extent, has been uh, discredited uh, pretty, pretty roundly by economists. But, but the underlying point, there's something to it, is that you need to... <laughs> well, I would say to the extent economists have discredited the well, 1980s and 1990s, 90s have, have credited it. But, well, yeah. well, no, that's, uh, you're, you're entirely wrong there. But if the point being is that tax yeah. cuts do not pay for themselves. That's a ridiculous argument. But uh, in any case, it's still true that tax cuts, while they don't pay for themselves, certain types of tax cuts will give you advantages so that you can't just say, well, we're losing X dollars in revenue because if people are actually paying, make more money, they pay more in taxes, even at a lower rate. So there's there's something to be said there. It's right. just it, that it, even even the most hardcore Keynesian uh, economist, I think, would, would agree that tax cuts have the the uh, again, assuming they're properly targeted and so forth, uh, uh, produce an economic boost. Well, yeah, they they might say that they would not they would not necessarily agree that they produce the boost that offsets the revenue lost from the cut. In fact, they wouldn't say that. But but you know, I, I think the related issue is. Uh, well, one term that I heard him say almost like a mantra was no revenue neutrality when he was talking about tax cuts. You know, he's talking about that 15% corporate rate that President Trump wants that he's not going to get. But in any case, 
you know, I, I, and I think to me, it's sort of a Trojan horse because my sense, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but my sense is sort of what Jim Jordan and the Freedom Caucus want is they're interested in bottom line shrinking government. And so revenue neutrality means that there's no shrinkage of government. It just kind of shifts things around and so forth. Well, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah. And then he didn't actually say that, but I'm sure that's what he meant is that we want government to be smaller, providing fewer services to fewer people. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I think this is, and again, to me, that's, you know, a welcome message into a lot of Republicans. I mean, there was a uh, governor, George, uh, George Voinovich of Ohio, um, uh, used to say that, you know, his goal was to do uh, more with less. And, and often, you know, some conservatives would respond to that saying, no, our, you know, the, the goal ought to be to do less. <laughs> I mean, uh, the idea that you want a government that does more uh, is, is sort of antithetical to conservatism. And the idea being that, uh, look, the, the more we get government out of the way, then the more uh, uh, the private sector uh, and, and other non-government entities can can grow, the more room they have to operate. So, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I think you, you got it. And I'm, I'm happy that I think, uh, you know, whether you agree with uh, Congressman Jordan's message or not, I, I think he, he did a a good job explaining it and, and putting it out yeah. there. Yeah. And, you know, I think, you know, that points out that there's kind of that, that fundamental distinction. You know, I, I talked about this earlier about, you know, what do we mean by freedom? That also gets into the role of government. And, and certainly, you know, I, I, I thought he, you know, he seemed like a really nice guy and earnest and all that, and did not seem like he had horns or anything like that. And, you know, and he was just, he, I think he legitimately believes that we as a country will be better off if we are free from uh, government they're not totally free, but freer from government. I'm sure he'd look at his interference as whereas, you know, I think I and a lot of people on the left would say exactly the opposite, that no, we would be better off if government intervened more in certain areas to help out uh, the neediest and, and the most uh, the most vulnerable. So, um, sure. uh, yeah, fair, fair enough. But I just want to say again, uh, it was really an honor uh, talking to him. And I'm, I'm really proud and, and uh, happy that he came on our show. And uh, we, of course, invite him to come back anytime. Uh, and uh, hopefully we're going to have more of these types of interviews uh, coming up with uh, with lawmakers in the future. Yeah, absolutely. You know, before we close, there is one other thing I wanted to say. I wanted to get your thoughts on toward the end of your uh, interview with him. There were these kind of I thought they were kind of these odd arguments about the Obama administration trying to improperly influence the 2016 election. I mean, he, he kind of saw on, on the economic stuff. I was like, okay, you know, I don't agree with them here on this really. Cause we have some fundamental ideological differences, but okay. I, I, you know, this all kind of tracks for me if I accept certain basic assumptions, which I don't, don't accept. Right. But on this, he sounded kind of like a right wing Michael Moore to me, you know, and I, I think Michael Moore, he makes me roll my eyes with his, you know, ridiculous kind of making these weird connections, tinfoil hat wearing kind of stuff, I think, you know, conspiracy theory. And well, no, I got to no, say, I, I Jim Jordan. conspiracy theory at all. And I'm, I'm yeah. happy to uh, uh, extrapolate on that. I mean, that's, th I mean, this is something that, again, a lot of your, your medium to center right uh, editorial boards have, have talked about for years. And that is that, listen, if, if after, you know, in the wake of Citizens United, uh, Lois Lerner uh, was, uh, or others at the IRS, were keeping conservative groups uh, on the sidelines during that election. They were unable to raise money, unable to spend money. That made a difference. And and when the government is involved in, and again, in what appears by all 
I would say most, most evidence to have been a targeting of conservative groups uh, as a, based on their their political leanings. Uh, that's that's a problem. That is government interference. Um, and I, I think there's there's and especially by the IRS, which is is sort of a a powerful uh, has the ability to to do a lot of bad things to you, either uh, monetarily or uh, uh, even criminally. Um, and there have been proposals that that maybe that authority uh, ought to be better vested uh, in the Federal Elections Commission, which is is also a run by a bipartisan commission rather than a administrator uh, who is essentially a appointed civil servant. Um, but but that's I mean that's where that argument's coming from and I and I, I think it's a, a legitimate argument and and many uh, on the right have have made it that uh, look in the the Romney election a lot of these groups were were hamstrung uh, and and could not participate. I, I think I, I certainly read those arguments and I'm familiar with those arguments and I, I think they are incredibly uh, overstated and exaggerated. Now that's a whole different conversation, obviously. But I also wanted to you know get to your point on you know that you know you suggested maybe vesting that kind of authority in some kind of bipartisan board. That sounds exactly like the sort of thing that somebody who wants government to be as as ineffective as possible would suggest because the FEC, of course, is is uh, is uh, notoriously ineffective because when you have a board that's composed of equal numbers of partisans from both sides, whenever there's anything that's even remotely controversial, what happens is, of course, is the three Republicans vote one way, the three Democrats vote the other way, and then there is no decision. And so that's a recipe for government inaction. And so, you know, I, in specifics with the with the Lerner case, again, I, I think that's probably another, you know, another discussion for us to get into. But, but I just think uh, maybe even more broadly that it felt to me like he was making, pushing kind of a false equivalence argument, what I think is a false equivalence argument that, well, you know, this Trump stuff, it's similar to what the Democrats are doing. And to me, there's a huge difference between very questionable claims of advocating for your party's candidate, which is most of the stuff that he was talking about the Obama administration and potentially working with a hostile foreign government to plant fake news stories. Those things to me, that that's not quite as much of a false equivalence as calling the, the Antifa and, you know, and then, and, and uh, neo-Nazis the same thing, but it's, it's a, you know, it's also a false equivalence. And I think that the right far too often, you know, defaults that, Oh, well, you know, Obama and Clinton did this when we're talking about a difference of difference of the, so pretty significant difference of degree. Oh, uh, well, I mean, that, that, that remains to be seen. Let's let's wait and see sure, what the okay. uh, Russian investigation un- right. unveils. But I, I think it, it ought to be of, of real concern to anyone. And I brought this up in the interview. When you have the the elements of, of our government uh, trying to um, uh, enforce the will of, of the administration, and that's 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 what's different is you've got. Um, and again, there were, was a lot written at the time. Um, you know, did Lois Lerner do this on Obama's instructions, or or more sinister is she just thought this would be helpful? And that's what I, I think is is uh, is troubling. Is Americans uh, ought not to? I mean, I think we certainly ought to be on guard against uh, foreign powers. Uh, we shouldn't have to be on guard against our own government. Well, I, you know, I agree with you in principle on all those points. Actually, I think where our disagreement is, is the extent to which this actually uh, occurred in the Obama administration. And I expect I have a pretty strong agreement with Jim Jordan on that as well. Well, and, and again, darn it, if if uh, Lois Lerner's server hadn't been uh, hadn't been uh, destroyed, uh, erased, uh, we might know. But uh, uh, darn it, for uh, some reason uh, it, that got erased. So it, it may be we'll never know. And and, and uh, as we mentioned, uh, the Justice Department uh, is, has indicated it's not pursuing charges, but Congress will continue to investigate and we'll, we'll see what we find out. Yeah, we will.
Thanks for listening to this Politics Guys interview. If you're not already a supporter of the show, I hope you'll consider becoming one because without our supporters, we wouldn't be able to do this. And when you become a supporter, you get not just that warm, fuzzy feeling knowing that you're supporting a good cause. I like to think we're a good cause, but you also get stuff like ad-free versions of everything we put out. You get our supporter exclusive midweek show, the full length of that, not just the preview. And you also get to be part of our Discord group if you want. And there's always some interesting conversations going on there. At the $10 a month level or more, you get to actually be part of the episodes Jay and I I do if that's something you're interested in. So there's a lot of stuff is what I am saying. And I hope you'll consider checking it out. And to do that, just go to patreon.com slash politics guys. If you want to support us on Venmo, we're at politics guys. You can also support the show through PayPal and all of our support links are always in the show notes as well as at politicsguys.com slash support. And as always, I want to close with a very special thank you to our wonderful executive producers, Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, and Don Oglesby.